Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. This episode features a talk given by Jean-Pierre Cabestan on his recent book, China Tomorrow, Democracy or Dictatorship. Cabestan is a political scientist at Hong Kong Baptist University. This talk was given in Madison in fall 2019. Well, thanks a lot, Ed, for this very kind introduction. Uh, Ed and I, we've known each other for more than 35 years. We met in Paris uh, when Ed uh, took part in a conference on China in the early 80s. I think it was 84 or something. I was at the time a young researcher uh, attached to a, a French center called the French National Center for Scientific Research. Uh, you know, France is a, a country which is, has a, very, uh, a number of features which are very similar to socialist countries. And my institution is a bit like the Academy of Sciences in the Soviet Union or the Academy of Social Sciences in, in, in China, the Shoei Kushu Yuan. So we, you don't need to do anything, just to do, you just need to research. Uh, you don't need to teach, you are very free of your time. Uh, but some people don't do much. Some people, well, think they, they paid for something. So they, they, they get interested in what they're doing. And that's, that's been my case. I've been a student of China for more than 40 years. I started to study Chinese. Maybe of you were not born. I'm getting a bit old. And it was exactly in 74, 1974. If you remember what happened in China in 1974, you know, two things happened. Deng Xiaoping went to the UN to talk about the three world theory, which was Mao Zedong's uh, leading theory of uh, international relations at the time. And you had the beginning of a very interesting campaign in China called the Pilim Pikong campaign, which is to criticize Lin Biao and Confucius in the same basket, an extreme leftist leader and an extreme conservative thinker, Confucius, put in the same basket. Now, if you imagine today, uh, if you tell Xi Jinping that Lin Biao and Confucius should be put in the same bag, well, it would be shock, I think. Anyway, so we, we're living in another China, uh, which, um, uh, which uh, for me, as a student of China, keeps surprising me. Uh, that's why, as most scholars, uh, I've added a question mark at the end of the, my book title, uh, what kind of political system China is going to yield in the coming years? Is it, will it stay with the one-party system uh, the way it is today, or will it move towards democracy? Uh, it's, it's a very big question, and uh, as you may know, I, I live in Hong Kong, a place which is in a way at the heart of the, of the, of the question I, I'm uh, uh, trying to address in my book, which is the question of democracy, the question of political values, a tr tr question of political organization. And in Hong Kong, you, we've got, a, since the handover, and even before the handover, we've got a hybrid political system. Uh, we've got a lot of freedoms, public freedoms, public liberties. Uh, but at the same time, our political system in Hong Kong is only what people would call semi-democratic. We have a semi-elected parliament. Uh, 40 of the 70 seats of the LegCo, the Legislative Council, are uh, truly democratically elected. Another 30 seats are elected by uh, what we call professional constituencies, so corporate, you know, representing co co uh, cooperative interests. Uh, and then the CE, what we call the CE, the chief executive, Carrie Lam today, she's not really elected. She's elected by a, a group of 1,200 uh, personalities, the uh, nominating or elect election committee, 
but 80% of them are pro-China figures. So actually, the choice is made by Beijing. And that's at the heart of the, the not only the debate, but the confrontation we're having in today in Hong Kong. So I may come back to that later, but I would like to mention the, why Hong Kong is so important for China's future is because you've got a clash of political <coughs> values between the political values, I guess, as dominating Hong Kong, which are liberal values in the political sense, uh, the idea of multi-party democracy, elections, one person, one vote, and so on. Uh, and in mainland China, the dominant values are the ones, I think, uh, promoted by the Communist Party, which is uh, the Communist Party is legitimate because it, it, it won the revolution in 49, and no one should question its legitimacy to lead the people and to lead China and to run the country. So um, I, I would, we can come back to Hong Kong uh, in the Q&A. I won't talk more about Hong Kong, but I would like to sort of concentrate on, on the book and the question the book is asking or trying to address regarding mainland China as such. Now, in a nutshell, I will say that uh, my main argument is to uh, propose that the, the regime in China is very strong. Uh, it's basically stable. It's basically it's well organized. It's getting better organized every day. And it's, not, it's supported by a lot of people in China. If you talk to people in China in the street, they wouldn't, they wouldn't question the system, the way it all, it's organized. If they don't support it, they don't challenge it, and they take it for granted. Of course, there are signs of erosion, and there's a puzzle, uh, which I don't have the answer to, which is, on the one hand, you see the Chinese leadership being very self-confident. On, on, on the other hand, uh, particularly since Xi Jinping took over, you have a sense of paranoia, a sense of danger, which is uh, increasing within the leadership. So how do you reconcile both uh, arguments is something actually, actually uh, which uh, we don't have a good answer to. So the big question mark is whether this regime, which is very stable, very strong, and modernizing, and now in control of more and more wealth and resources, so more and more able to sustain uh, its, uh, its uh, domination, how can it change? And um, this book is, a, in a sense, a, a continuation of a debate you, I'm sure you've heard of, uh, which started a few years ago in the US and elsewhere, about the fragilities of the uh, PRC political system, the People's Republic of China uh, political system. And it's a kind of a critique of some of the book which have been published by very good friends of mine, I have to say, in the last few years including David Chambo's book, I don't know if you heard of it, China's Future in 2015, or Pei Min Sin's book, uh, Min Sin Pei book, on, on the, uh, the uh, uh, corruption and the, uh, uh, and the, uh, um, uh, the uh, I forgot the exact title, but it's about the fact that the corruption would, should, should eventually um, lead the regime to an end and that the People's Republic of China won't survive more longer than the Soviet Union. Even a few years ago, if you remember the Bosilai affair in 2012, when, you, when Bosilai was, uh, was, was purged, and some people would, would have coined the concept of uh, regime resilience, uh, authoritarian resilience, like, and, and the Nathan still started to have question marks about the future of the regime, whether it's going to survive or whether it should, it should change over the years. 
So there was a sense again that the regime, there was, the regime was facing a, a danger of uh, a risk of erosion. Now, among the books which have influenced this, this study and this essay, uh, there's a one which was published, I think, three years ago by Bruce Dixon at the University of Washington, Washington University in, 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 uh, in, in, in Washington, D.C., um, uh, which argue, called the dictator's dilemma, which is based on quite a number of uh, interesting opinion surveys, and which argues that actually a lot of people in China support the regime for it, what it has delivered. And that brings us back to the question of political values and political culture. And that's, I think, one of the main arguments of, of, of my book. Why do people support the regime or don't challenge the regime? Now, of course, I won't deny the fact that the regime is based on surveillance, on repression, and what has you know, been published in the last few days in the media tend to sort of demonstrate that the regime, uh, the way it's organized, uh, it uh, uh, has managed to intimidate any, and, and put a lot of pressure on anyone who wants to challenge the regime, all the way from the pro-democracy activists, uh, deceased uh, Liu Xiaobo, or today Xu Zhuyong, or other people, but also people like in Xinjiang, we've, you know, we've been put into jail and concentration camp in large numbers because the party see uh, in them a real danger to the stability of the country. Um, and, um, but, but at the same time, uh, what you see in China, uh, you see a distance from politics and an acceptation of the, the way the, the, the system is organized and, 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 and the party rules the country. There's been some quite amazing opinion polls indicating even you know, 15 years ago that uh, something like 84% of the Chinese inter you know, uh, surveyed believe that China is already democratic. So that brings us to the question of what kind of democracy are we talking about? And even today, uh, according to more recent opinion polls, not only by Bruce Dixon, but uh, a well-known survey center called the Af um, Asia Barometer, if you ever heard of it, they all confirm these results that uh, a lot of Chinese are happy to live in the regime they, they're living, and uh, uh, which uh, has delivered not only economic growth and prosperity, but also stability and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and security to most of the people. So that brings us uh, to asking the question whether that approach to politics is just a reflection of China's traditional culture, which is to say, and that's well-known Confucian's principle, that the, the, the government is a government for the people, but it's never been in China a government by the people. If you go to classics like Theodore de Barry's uh, uh, study on Confucianist state, that's exactly what he meant. And uh, in a way, Mao Zedong, where he says, what do you mean, Wu? Serving the people is just a reflection or a continuation of this very traditional approach to politics. Yes, the Communist Party serves the people or claims to serve the people, but by any means, the, the politics should be uh, the affair of the people, the business of the people, is the business of the elite. Tunzi in the past and the Communist Party leading cadre, Ling Dao Gampu, today. Now, this view is very, is very tempting, it's very seducing, but I disagree with it. There are major differences, and that's the argument I try to put forward in that book, in particular in the chapter two, when I sort of try to weight 
the evaluate the weight of the Chinese traditional culture, I think there are a number of things we've, we've forgotten about what has happened in the last 150 years in China. First of all, there's been, since the end of the Qing Dynasty, a big debate in China among Chinese thinkers about what kind of political regime should help China, help China developing, getting stronger, and being able to sort of uh, uh, contain the forces coming from overseas, particularly from the West, and, and, and challenging China's uh, statehood. Some uh, have proposed, like Sun uh, Yat-sen, Hu and others, um, an evolution of China towards more democracy, more liberal democracy. And of course, you have another stream of uh, thought promoted by the Communist Party, Chen Duxiu and others, starting in the 20s, promoting a much more stronger regime, a stronger uh, party, and even party state in order to sort of modernize China. But this debate has been going on for 100 years. And um, what the Communist Party, when it eventually prevailed in 1949, established as a, as a, as a, as a, as a regime, as a political system, is very different from any kind of traditional imperial political system. It's very much, it's very, to put it simply, is a Soviet system with a base on a, on a very large party organization, 90 million members today, uh, which controls every level of the society and every uh, production unit of the society. So it's much more intrusive in, in everyday life than the traditional imperial bureaucracy, which was, first of all, very small and very, very far away from, from the, what we call the gentry or the, the village communities, which precisely were managed by the gentry, which acted as a go-between between, between the, uh, the, the, the mandarins or the, 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 the traditional uh, 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 bureaucrats and, and, the, and, the, and the rural society. So China, in the last 70 years, mainland China, has been structured by the Communist Party and its political values have been changed by, the, by this communist tradition to a great extent. And that's something actually we should bear in mind. And that's why, actually, what the party has been doing for 70 years is to negate uh, the liberal tradition of China and to sort of uh, um, re, um, well, keep, keep Sun Yat-sen in a, in, a, in a nice frame, but not inspiring any, uh, not using any of his ideas to change or to modernize the, the political system and uh, sort of sidelining the, uh, the, uh, uh, all the liberal tradition of the, of the, of the modernizers of China's uh, China 20th century. Now, this is, uh, of course, not enough to explain the, the, the difficulties for China to, mo to move towards a more open and democratic system. I mentioned the control exerted by the party over the civil society. And, and here, I think, there is a strong argument to say that the party has not only adapted to the uh, new environment it has created through the economic and social reforms of China and China's economic globalization, but also it has established new forms of control of the society. Um, if you take the case of the civil society, which is still emerging in China today, it's fair to say that many of the NGOs which have appeared in the last 20 or 30 years are now very dependent upon the party. They, they can operate to a certain extent with some autonomy, but at the same time, the party has been very keen to sort of uh, provide them with resources and 
um, and guiding them in the in their activity in such a point that such a to such a point that they are very dependent upon the party state and they are in, I, I, they are controlled by the party. Then, if you take the example of the internet, another example which you know has been sort of discussed as a possible um, avenue for China's democratization. I think the internet is well, as you know, well controlled in China. It is um, uh, not only because of the great firewall, but also because most people are quite happy with all the of the all the all the tools at the disposal in China itself, all the way from Baidu and uh, Alipay and so on, to be satisfied with the system. If you take the case of you know the VPN, this kind of instrument, virtual private network, which is used by a lot of Chinese, well, some Chinese at least to get across the Great Firewall and, and, get, and get better informed about the situation of their country, of the rest of the world. Uh, actually, only 90 million people use a VPN in China. Well, it's not, it's not a small number, but 90 million out of uh, maybe 800 million uh, internet users is still a small minority. So most people don't use a VPN, they don't feel they need to use a VPN. In other words, I think the party has managed to uh, create some kind of equilibrium uh, within the internet in order to keep control of it. Now another interesting sign uh, of uh, the regime solidity is the f the, how much the Communist Party remains attractive. Uh, if you look <laughs> at the statistics, as well the official statistics have been published by the party, you have, it's very hard to get into the party and you have 10 more candidates for one, for, for, for the number of uh, seats available within the party. So it means that you still have a lot of people want to get into the party. For, of course, not for idealistic reasons, I think for very practical reasons, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. still the party is, uh, uh, is attractive and as such, it has helped the, the regime to continue to, uh, to, I mean, to, to remain uh, uh, strong and, and stable. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the new instruments put into place by the Communist Party in order to control the society, and those instruments are, are a bit scary. Uh, like the social credit system or the facial recognition. Um, what I would say about the, these new systems is that the party has been very keen to sort of um, preempt the current, uh, the, the risks, uh, the new risks uh, un, uh, and unseen risks of the current urbanization of China. The China now is getting, is becoming an urban city, an urban society. 60% of the Chinese live in cities now in China. It's unprecedented. China has always been a rural society. When Mao died, less than 20% of the Chinese live in cities. So most of the people live in, in countryside. So when you have a concentration of people living in cities, the risks of unrest and protest are increasing dramatically. So that's why I think the party has decided to put new mechanism in place in order to preempt all sorts of risks. And the Social credit system is one of those mechanisms, which is, uh, I think, pretty effic efficient to, uh, to, to preempt risk, even if, of course, you can't preempt every risk. What I one thing I would add uh, on the social credit system, if you, of course, some people may have um, some concern, including in China, but the, the risk it, it passes to privacy, to private freedom. But at the same time, by and large, I, can, I mean, most people support it because it improves the, the um, uh, it is sort of encourage civilized behaviors uh, from people who don't behave, you know, in a civilized manner, and in, in transportations, uh, in, in public space, and so on. And the, the, the system is been pretty much supported. Now, 
uh, talking about serious society, I don't want to talk because we can come back to that in, in the Q&A, but I would add just one new phenomenon which has been very much debated by everyone, including political scientists in China. Um, religious revival. As you know, there is real religious revival in China today. Uh, not only among Buddhists, Taoists, but also uh, you, you've got a real Christian revival, uh, which is, uh, for the Chinese authorities, something of an issue. Um, as you know, Xi Jinping is ready and the Chinese Communist Party would like to favor what, what it calls uh, Chinese or Asian religions, like Buddhism, Taoism, uh, and, and would like to contain the revival of Christianity and Western religions. Actually, in that new uh, landscape. I don't think that Islam is, real, is a real issue in China. Uh, the number of Muslim people in China has remained pretty stable. Who is Muslim in China? Two, mainly two communities, the Uyghur and the other uh, Turkic <coughs> people in, in Xinjiang and the Hui people everywhere in China. Uh, so it's around 20 million uh, people together, maybe 25 million people. So it's not, it's not a, Christianity, in contrast, has exploded in China. There are, there are statistics indicating that actually there are more Christians than Communist Party members in China today, 100 million. Maybe an exaggeration, maybe it's around 70 million. But now the question is, are these people political? And my answer here is no. Most people, most religious groups, including the one who, which want to, be, to remain autonomous, which want to remain distant from the government, and which we want to, to keep their freedoms, what, they, what they're fighting for they're fighting for their autonomy. They're fighting for survival, like the house church, they, they don't try to get into politics. Now, of course, you've got a few activists. What you've noticed on the other side are quite a number of activists in China. Human rights lawyer, Wei Chuan Yundong, the Liu Shi, political activists, are Christian. For them, it's a new way of protecting themselves, also defending themselves, and, 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 and getting support from, from, from the, their religious faith in their fight. Uh, but it doesn't mean that most Christians are political. I think most Christians, by and large, are not political. And again, I don't think that as such, a religious revival in China is a danger, presents a danger for the Communist Party's survival. Now, because of time, let's move to another important factor, because you know, if China, Chinese political system changes tomorrow, it will be probably not caused by the society as large, at large, because you can see that this is, there is not much um, source of uh, political change or, or pressure for political change within the society it, itself. If there is a change, it will come from the elites. Now, so we have to look at the elites the way they are organized in China today. Now, there are different kinds of elites. Of course, you have the Communist Party elites, and there you're facing a, a kind of black box because if you are in the Communist Party and if you, have a, if you hold a very strong position in the Communist Party, the last thing you will do is to sort of uh, pretend to be in favor of, you know, opening the political system and democratization. Um, if, you are, if you were, to put it simply, if you were Gorbachev in today's China, you will hide yourself until you control power, until you, 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 you are strong enough to, to be, in, to be uh, in control of a large coalition able to, to lead the party in another direction. So most people will remain pretty much masked in, in the Communist Party. So we don't know the answer uh, regarding the party. And in any event, uh, well, as we see China today, there are no very visible or meaningful forces within the party pushing for 
regime change for moving towards uh, opening and uh, uh, the end of um, the one party system. Now, what about the economic elites? And that's a question we need to ask, actually, because you, know, you have in China more and more private entrepreneurs, and they have resources, they are in control of wealth, and they may become tomorrow um, a challenge or a force of uh, change uh, in, in, in China. And what is interesting is the way the Communist Party has tried to set up party branches in, in every large, meaningful uh, private company. Uh, and uh, so uh, in doing so, uh, I think again the party is trying to preempt the risks of having more uh, powerful people in the society, people holding economic and financial power, which tomorrow can become a force to be reckoned with. Now, actually, what I, would what I argue in my book, at the local level, private businesses are already a force to be reckoned with. If you go to Wenzhou, private entrepreneurs, they, they, they have their ways of influencing the party. Of course, the party still remains the boss, at least on the paper, but uh, at the same time, there are a lot of negotiations at, at the local level, which uh, we, we have to watch very carefully to see whether down the road, uh, the, the economic elites, the new economic elites of the country can be a force um, for in favor of political changes. For the time being, the good news is it's not the case. Uh, as Bruce Dixon and others, the red capitalists in China are very obedient to, par to the party, and most of them, they play the rule, they, they, they play the game according to the rule. And they are party members. You know, we, we, we discovered not long ago that uh, Jack Ma himself was a party member for a long time. And uh, most, of the, uh, most of the private entrepreneurs, they don't want to challenge the party. They, 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 they play the game uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a much more subtle way. Now, what about the intellectual elites? Here again, if you look at the debate among the intellectuals in China, they're dominated by two main groups. One is the new left, that we call the Xin Zopai, uh, very much in favor of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, strengthening the state, making the state even stronger, uh, incre increasing the state capacity, and that's their obsession, which is a very old obsession in China, which goes back to the late 19th century, where the, with this Fujian ideology was uh, starting to emerge. Uh, again, uh, it's much more important to strengthen the state to, than to democratize the, uh, the political system for them. And then you've got another group, which uh, I would call the new Confucianists, um, uh, encouraged by the party um, to um, sort of promote a uh, kind of a restoration of Confucianism in China as a way of controlling the party, controlling the society, and, 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 and keeping the people obedient to the, to the rulers. What about the liberals? What about the, uh, what we call the Zhuyi, uh, the liberal, liberal intellectuals? Well, they're still surviving, but they are very much silenced, sidelined, and, 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 and somewhat repressed. Now, it doesn't mean they have disappeared, and that's maybe uh, something we have to keep in mind for the future. If you take the example of someone I'm sure you've heard of, uh, Xu Zhongrun, who is a professor at Tsinghua University, uh, yes, he's been bad from teaching, but he hasn't lost his job. He's still there. If you go to Beijing, to Tsinghua University, you can see him. He's in his office. So, you, so it's, uh, and, and you can, you know, even foreigners can see us and, and, and have, a, have a conversation with him. So these people are going to stay in the picture, but clearly they, they, they're having difficulties having an impact on, on, on the society and on intellectual debates. 
Now you've got, uh, that's the final argument had uh, in that part of the elites, you've got the counter elites. What are the chances of the counter elites to sort of uh, getting, getting traction and, and changing, change, pushing the regime to, to change? Um, for the time being, I would say very little. Uh, sometimes outside of China, we tend to exaggerate the influence. Uh, I mentioned earlier the human rights lawyers. Yes, how many of them do you have? Maybe 1,000, 500, 1,000 at most uh, out of uh, 100,000 um, lawyers. So it's a very small group of people, very courageous people, but uh, these people uh, have a difficulty making a difference. The same, I would say, for uh, the older groups who are now around the uh, Kongmen and these uh, Yong and others who are trying to, you know, the, what we call the con constitutionalist group. People want to sort of force the party to apply the constitution, to respect the constitution, and to make the constitution of the country the supreme rule, the supreme law of the country, which is not the case because, of course, the party is above the constitution and the, and the constitution much abide by the party uh, instructions and decisions. Uh, but these people are also, uh, they, they're still around, some are in jail, some have been released, uh, some are under constant surveillance, so you've got rotation of public security, also people, you know, keeping track on them and, and accompanying them everywhere they go. Uh, but, uh, but I think their influence in, in the country for the time being is pretty small. Now, now the question, of course, is what could change uh, this current state of affairs? Uh, of a China which is in a political system which is very strong, very well organized, and better and better organized. That's what, I argue, what I argue in the first chapter of that book is that there is a real modernization of the, of the governance system. Uh, and, and it's uh, the governance system, the way it, you know, it, it operates, and that's one of the priorities of Xi Jinping, improving really governance of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of China. It, it, uh, China has really made progress. So you, that's the sunny part of the regime. Now you've got a dark part of it, which is of course the Communist Party itself. The way the, way the Communist Party makes decisions uh, in a very secretive manner. We just had the fourth plane of the Senate Committee. You know, we don't know what kind of debate these people had and what, you know, what kind of dis discussion they had. We, we just got the resolution at the end of the And we don't know, of course, if they were divided on some issues or united on other issues. The party wants to keep those discussions very secretive. And, uh, uh, and wants to sort of keep that uh, image of unity outside of it. So in other words, uh, my argument is the party is a secret society and it will remain a secret society as long as you, it's a one-party system. Now, moving to what would be the forces um, that would sort of trigger a regime change or a change or at least an evolution towards uh, another political system, let's say democracy. There is an, an argument that uh, econ an economic slowdown, economic crisis, will trigger a social crisis and may trigger a political crisis. That may be true, but actually it tends to sort of underestimate the fact that the regime itself, the regime legitimacy and strength is not only based on economic success or prosperity. Yes, it has played a role and continues to play a role. But my argument is to say there are two other pillars sort of uh, at the foundation of this political stability you have, or what I have called uh, this uh, authoritarian equilibrium. First of all, nationalism. Nationalism, I think, is a very strong force, which has been not only used by the party, but also kidnapped by the party, hijacked by the party, which sees itself as the only one 
which can dictate the rules of what, what is nationalist and what is not nationalist, what is patriotic, what is not patriotic. And, and that's very important. The other one, um, I think, and the party has also very much used and even abused that argument, the fear of chaos. Luan. Pa Luan. If you go to China, a lot of people will tell you, if we introduce democracy, it's going to be Luan. It's going to be chaos. Well, I don't know why. You know, I mean, other countries have introduced democracy. Uh, it doesn't produce chaos. But I mean, it looks like, I mean, it, from a psychological point of view, I would argue a lot of Chinese, educated Chinese, you know, where they feel themselves. They feel that if they introduce too much freedom, people will do, you know, they will do a lot of uh, uh, they, they wouldn't behave the way uh, they behave when they are under control. So they kind of feel themselves. Of, and that's quite interesting from a psychological point of view and even sociological point of view. Um, but, but beyond the argument, this argument is very strong. And, uh, and in, in case of economic crisis, a lot of people will support the regime uh, as in the Communist Party itself as a provider of safety and security. In other words, in a hierarchy of political values, a lot of Chinese today put safety, security, safety of their person, safety of the family, safety of the belongings ahead of uh, freedom. And that's something which is uh, pretty prevalent in China. Whether it's going to change, of course it may change, but that's the current state of affairs. Now, would an international crisis provoke a regime change? You know, some people they argue that, okay, China will maybe venture a, a, a war against Taiwan and that will trigger a regime change because if China, if the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA are defeated, uh, that, will, that will maybe trigger a regime change. Uh, my argument here is that I think if you look at the history of the Communist Party and the PLA, they've been very cautious how to use force. And in particular in time of crisis, well, if you take the example of the Cultural Revolution, um, Mao Zedong was very keen to avoid taking risks with the, the outside world and preventing the PLA to get involved in the Vietnam War in the, uh, in the middle of the 60s. Uh, I think it was a very strong uh, decision uh, showing that the party's priority is much more its survival than, than uh, getting involved in a crisis where uh, it, could, it, could, it could actually um, uh, get, get damaged and, and get, get, get challenged. So now let's, uh, time flies, let's look at the longer term future and what are the forces which inside China can erode uh, the Communist Party legitimacy. Um, there are quite a, a number of forces, and some of them I've just mentioned them very briefly. I think urbanization is a challenge. Uh, the, the need to continue to, to support private, private entrepreneurship and the, uh, as opposed to the SOEs. Of course, the SOEs, the enterprise, the state sector of the economy, remains a priority for, for the regime. And it has been reaffirmed at the fourth plenum again. But at the same time, <laughs> if you want to create jobs, and, and Li Keqiang knows it pretty well, and all the economists in China know, know, it, know it pretty well, that if China wants to create jobs and, 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 and stimulate growth, they need to rely on private businesses. So as we go, there will, will be more and more private businesses. And again, that's maybe down the road a force for change. Now, there's another question mark, which uh, may be a force uh, of uh, erosion. What about the youth? Uh, today, young people they, in China has, very, uh, has remained pretty much far away from politics. They're not interested in politics, more interested in the, tablet, the tablets, 
uh, the electronic games and so on. Uh, but look at Hong Kong. When I moved back to Hong Kong 10 years ago in 2007, my students were not interested in politics. They were not interested in what I was talking uh, about, what I was teaching to them. They were interested in computer, in, well, not in computer, but, but also, you know, the first choice would be to study accounting or finance, not to study political science. Today, in Hong Kong, things have changed. Young people are much more involved in, in politics. And they, they got politicized in the last five years or so. I mean, since the umbrella movement five years ago. So, of course, the political environment in China, mainland China is very different. But uh, I think uh, what I would say, it's safe to say that the youth, young people in China, they live on another planet uh, from the parents and the grandparents. They don't communicate well and they, they really they have uh, other, uh, other views and, uh, and, and the mindset is pretty different from the, uh, the elder members of the community. Now, there are other, so that leads our question mark. Now, as a party itself, if you look at the party, the Communist Party, the, its discourse, and you've got here um, a lot of paradoxes and, 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 and tensions because the party's discourse is so far away from the economic and social reality. If you look at the party constitution, it's still very Leninist. Com communism is still the objective of the Communist Party. But at the same time, the society which, is, which the party rules is, is moved so far away from, from, from the communist ideals that uh, there is a, you know, sooner or later there will be, this clash will reveal itself and will create more problems for the party. Uh, again, uh, um, I think the way the party is organized, at the, the, at the society is changing, at the society get, not only getting urbanized, but also you have a larger middle class today in China. Um, the, the, part, the, the way the party operates becomes more and more problematic. To operate as a secret society without informing the, the society about what they're doing, um, without you know, telling clearly more and more uh, Chinese taxpayers uh, where the money goes, uh, I think that's uh, uh, an issue for the future. Now, the, the, the good news, in a way, again, for the party and the regime is that the, the middle classes, I, would, I use the plural here because you have different, I mean, middle classes, you have different kinds of middle classes, um, they, they're not rocking the boat. And every time you have unrest in China, you have protests, but people, when they get involved in a protest or a, a movement or a protest action, usually it's for it's not motivated by a political reason. It's motivated by a particular objective. For instance, the um, construction of a polluting uh, factory next to, your, uh, 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 next to where you live, that's, that can trigger a real protest. And, 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 and the government has been very, um, very much more clever than in the past. In the past, it would have repressed the protesters. Now the, the government negotiates with the protesters and sometimes um, make concessions and decide to, you know, to change its uh, decision uh, in order to keep stability for the sake of stability. So, but again, what I wanted to point out here is more of the protest movements in China, wh whether they're organized by middle class people or by workers, they're motivated or they're triggered by, by economic or social grievances, not really by, uh, by willingness to challenge the Communist Party and to challenge the political regime as such. So, but down the road, I think there will be more uh, questions uh, uh, um, passed to the Communist Party and to the regime, the way it organized. Because again, you know, at one point, if you remember, 10 years ago, Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping's predecessor, 
wanted to democratize the, the, the way the party operates. So it's, it's called you know, intra-party democracy. But in, intra-party democracy is very hard to achieve for two reasons. Well, and, and, and what would be the implication? For, it's very hard to achieve because the party, again, is very secretive and will never tell you how people are elected, how decisions are made within the party. So, uh, what, what, and, so, and then if you know the party member, how can intra-party democracy uh, be, affect your life? It won't. It won't change your life and your relationship to, to, the, to the power and to the government whatsoever. Okay, I've spoken already too much and I would like to conclude um, about you know, what path in, the, in such uh, circumstances, what path uh, China is going to take. I think we can exclude uh, two uh, possible paths. Uh, the Taiwanization, the Taiwan path, which is, you know, top-down democratization uh, trigger, uh, which started in, 19, in the 1980s, uh, for a number of reasons which have to do with, the, with political values, I have to say, uh, with the, the, the openness of the society, with the fact that Taiwan was a U.S. ally, uh, and, um, and, and also that the KMT, in spite of its Leninist structure, was, uh, was much more influenced by liberal values and liberal ideas in the Communist Party. I mean, after all, com so, so the, the Kuomintang's founder was Sun Yat-sen, and you have very liberal, many liberal thinkers influencing the Kuomintang in spite of Chiang Kai-shek's uh, dictatorship. The other possible, uh, so I don't think that the, uh, the Taiwanese experience will be of uh, much value for China's future. Now, size matters, as you know, and China is much bigger than Taiwan, so it will be much harder to democratize China than China, Taiwan. The other possible, you know, interesting um, comparison is Singapore. And as you know, since uh, day one, I would say, since the beginning of the reform, Deng Xiaoping has been fascinated by Singapore, kind of authoritarian, well-organized modernity. And uh, some people in, in the Communist Party wanted to sort of introduce uh, the recipes uh, put together by Ling Wang Yu in Singapore in order to modernize the regime and, 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 and keep the party in the saddle. Now, there are differences, there are major differences, not only of size, but also of political background and, and legal background. I mean, the Singaporean state, in spite of her authoritarian nature, is very much uh, influenced by the British and the common local, uh, legal culture, uh, and which has, uh, uh, I think, had an impact on the, uh, on the political and legal environment in Singapore. And the other thing is you have multi-party democracy in Singapore. Even if it's a kind of guided democracy, uh, you have uh, opposition parties, which is not the case in China. So I think China's uh, evolution towards uh, another system will be uh, sui generis. Uh, the big problem, and that's, I think that's the reason the, 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 the Communist Party has refrained from reviving any kind of meaningful political reform, I think within the party they're, they're pretty much aware of, of the fact that as soon as they they move towards, I mean, they, they, they revive those political reforms. There is a danger of getting, of, uh, of uh, uh, moving too fast and, uh, and, and being forced to open up the system. Uh, that's why they're very sort of uh, keen to keep the one-party system uh, and to keep the party uh, at the top of the system very much. And, and that's particularly the case under sitting um, uh, Ping. My argument here is you can't democratize halfway. If you look at the end of the, you know, the end of the Cold War, uh, there was an interesting case, which was the case of Poland. Uh, Poland, one state, had uh, a semi-democratic parliament, but it didn't survive. You can't have a semi-democratic parliament forever, unless, in, like in Hong Kong, of course, you have an, a sovereign imposing that system and imposing uh, the local uh, authorities to keep that system in place. 
but apart, if, if a country gets you know, embarked and into a democratization process, it's very hard to stop the, 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 the evolution towards democracy and toward one man, one vote, one person, one vote uh, uh, halfway. And that's uh, why I think uh, the Communist Party wants to prevent that from happening. So for that reason, I think the, my conclusion is that the, the current system is part of the sign of erosion we've seen and I've mentioned briefly is uh, pretty strong, pretty stable and it will be uh, a regime of polity we will need to live with for a long period of time to go and that's why I mean it's raised a lot of questions and uh, I read this question in my conclusion what, what, what should we do as democracies uh, when we face such a regime and, and, and which is now the second economy in the world uh, I don't have any uh, uh, sort of ideal solution, but I think I would propose to be uh, maybe more vigilant, uh, more uh, selective in our um, engagement with China. But whether we should stop engaging China, I think uh, it's a question for politicians. What I would just say, there are two kinds of engagement. The engagement, uh, and then here I'm inspired by someone like uh, by, by, by Jim Mann, who said that there is one kind of engagement, which is to in engaging China, you're expecting that you're going to change China. I think that kind of engagement is dead or good. I don't think even the U.S. has not been has so far has been enabled to change China. And I think if China changes, it will be that will depend on the Chinese people itself, not upon uh, outside uh, players or outside outside countries. Uh, but the engagement, which is to sort of uh, keep some um, uh, stable relationship with China. Uh, because China is a globalized economy and because our interest is uh, um, not to fully decouple with the Chinese economy, I think that's uh, pretty sensible. So again, and I will finish on someone who has been very much criticized in China, Fukuyama. You remember Fukuyama, how wrong he was in 89 when he predicted the, hen the end of history. But he said something which is uh, later, he said in another book, something which, is, which makes a lot of sense you can't have democracy without Democrats. And my worry in China, but I think it's going to change, there's a lack of Democrats in China today, but I, I'm hoping that tomorrow there will be more of them. On that note, I will end my presentation. Thank you for your attention. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino. <laughs>